great to see and be with you all. I am just been blessed by this worship experience in a great mighty way. Um, just really, really, I like, I need all of y'all in Baltimore. Uh, y'all got the Holy Ghost and I need you. <laughs> I need you, the little church called Pleasant Hope. Reverend JJ, I need you to come read scripture like that. Jackson, I need you to come and read scripture at Pleasant Hope. But uh, thank you all so very much. Can we just give a hand, our sister leading praise and worship. Can we just thank God? Dr. Hunter knows and everybody knows setting the table in worship is a very sacred thing and when it's done well, it's uh, such a blessing to so many, including the ones who are participating. So thank you sincerely from the bottom of my heart. I'm thankful as well to uh, Shushama and Nate and the entire team for just the invitation. Thank you all so very much. I appreciate the invitation to come and be a part of this experience this week and to be with all of you. Can I just see the hands, before I get started, the hands of those who you know the majority of the people in this room? You know you know the majority of people. Who knows the majority of people in this room? Oh, good, so we all on the same footing, amen. All right, all right. Well, I suspect that by the end of this week, uh, we're gonna have deep relationships and connections, and we'll take a great journey together. The same will be true even for preaching. Uh, how many pastors are here? Because we don't know each other, we gotta ask. A lot of pastors are here. You know that uh, when you're preaching at home, it's a different feeling than when you're preaching out somewhere else. Uh, you know the cushion in your own sanctuary. You know how, to, how it maneuvers around you. Uh, and so I do certainly solicit your prayers as I've been asked to preach this week. And uh, I pray that God would uh, bless all of us. I will say finally before I begin, and uh, two things, one, some of y'all saw Baptist preacher and got nervous. Don't get nervous. It's okay. It's all right. Uh, I got a timer. I'm good. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. I ain't playing. So I have my timer. Uh, and I'll say yeah, that in my tradition, uh, call and response is a part of my preaching experience and tradition. So I will not be offended. Uh, if you are so moved to say amen, show your right. Uh, if I stumble, somebody say, help him, Lord, help him, Lord. Help him. <laughs> hey, listen, it's real, it's real. Y'all pray for me uh, as I want to be faithful and fruitful to the assignment this week. Uh, let me uh, read our passage of scripture and then we'll dive right in. It's from Numbers chapter 27. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8, um, Numbers 27, verses 1 through 8, and I see some turning to get there, Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. As you're turning, I want to recognize and honor uh, my ancestors, a great cloud of witnesses who stand around us even right now, and I'm thankful for my family ancestors, Bishop Heber Brown I, who you may hear about this week at some point, my, my Aunt Martha, who was born with a veil over her face, as they say, in North Carolina, and had insight and was a seer in our family and is in the ancestral realm, still in that place. I also want to honor the Lenape people on whose ancestral land we are gathering today, just to honor their spirits and their legacy 
um, even in our worship space today. Honor them as well. Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 8. When you found it, won't you say amen? Amen. amen. Here's what it says. Then the daughters of Zelophehad came forward. Zelophehad was the son of Hepher, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, son of Joseph, a member of the, the Manasite clans. The names of his daughters were Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Terza. They stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders in all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they said, our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, The daughters of Zelophehad are right in what they are saying. You shall indeed let them possess an inheritance among their father's brothers and pass the inheritance of their father on to them. You shall also say to the Israelites, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall pass his inheritance on to his daughter. That is the word of the Lord is blessed. For a few moments, family, allow me to preach as you pray in the Lord in power from the theme, these rules don't work for us. These rules don't work for us. Sisters and brothers, it's not likely to be a surprise to anyone here to know that just 45 years after the Civil War, African Americans, still fresh out of their chains and shackles, were able to collectively acquire 15 million acres of land across the United States, mainly in the South. By 1920, there were 925,000 black-owned farms in the country of record. That's more than impressive for a people that just came out of slavery, with deep recognition that land ownership equates to power and self-determination. Our ancestors prevailed against all odds to begin amassing the building blocks for their wealth and well-being. However, over the course of the 1900s, this impressive statistic regarding land ownership would come under attack. 600,000 black farmers were pushed off of their land. And while there were nearly one million black-owned farms in 1920, by 1975, only 45,000 farms remained. According to the nation, African Americans, African Americans composed less than 2% of the nation's farmers and 1% of its rural landowners. In his book, Dispossession, Discrimination Against African American Farmers in the Age of Civil Rights, Pete Daniels says, quote, it was almost as if the earth was opening up and swallowing black farmers, end quote. There were many reasons that prompted the loss of black farmers and land, but the earth had little to do with it. In one sense, it had more to do with rampant racism and terrorism by white Southerners. Many of them donning white hoods would harass black families until they fled from their land in fear of their lives. 
The black families would flee. Members of the white community would take their land and property. Another reason we saw this land loss was the discrimination practices of the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, which blocked black landowners from receiving financial and technical support to develop their holdings. An investigative report published just last month, month by a publication called New Food Economy showed that discrimination against black farmers even continued during the advent of the first black president. To this day, challenges around black land ownership remain. In rural communities, it looks like overt racial harassment and heirs' property being snatched up. In urban cities, it looks like gentrification and families losing Big Mama's house because of water bills and ground rent. Dispossession and displacement and downright socio-political violence will make you want to holler the way they do your life. I came all this way to declare that these kinds of rules don't work for us. But that's hardly a surprise to anybody here. The real question is, how should we engage societal patterns and systems of domination that perpetually exclude and marginalize? And I believe we can find insight on this inquiry from the story of Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. The Hebrew Bible tells the story of these five sisters who were the daughters of a woman ignored by the scriptures and a man named Zelophehad who died in the wilderness while journeying with more than half a million other Hebrews out of slavery in Egypt, Kemet. The unrecognized mother and deceased father were of the tribe of Manasseh, the oldest son of Joseph, who would rise to prominence in the Pharaoh's administration. The context of this text places us immediately after a census was taken amongst the Hebrews, but before they would initiate a violent seizure of Canaanite land for themselves. Before they moved forward to capture the land, they had meetings based on the census to discuss who would get what land and how much. By rule, Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza were excluded from the high-stakes land negotiations because of their gender, as women were not considered worthy within this community to inherit and own land. Ownership and stewardship of family land is the issue. Stage and location was the place where exclusion showed up. Exploitation and domination show up in this story and the stage is set. It's the land. Land was the place where patriarchy and sexism joined a cabal with exploitation and seemingly divinely sanctioned exclusion of working class people in order to write Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza out of the story just like the scriptures did to their mother. But these five sisters said, oh no, these rules don't work for us. They show us a way to engage societal patterns and systems of domination that perpetually exclude and marginalize. What did they do? I'm glad you asked. Three quick things and I'm done. One, they progressed without permission. 
The text announces in the opening verse of our passage that these five sisters came forward and goes on to say that they stood before Moses, Eleazar, the priest, the leaders, the congregation, and God, whose presence was symbolized by the tent of meeting. They came forward and stood before the political leader, the religious authority, the governors, the people, and the divine. I love Dr. Wilda Gaffney's treatment of this text. In her work, Womanist Midrash, a reintroduction to the women of the Torah and the throne. She helps us to see that in a relatively rare move according to biblical and some interpretive standards, this passage declares the agency of these women in the very first verse of the story. The text says the women came forward. It's clear that they weren't invited. They weren't called for. They weren't on the agenda, they weren't expected, and they weren't desired. But standing in their own agency, they progressed without permission. And if we are to engage patterns and systems of domination, which include exploitation of people and land, then you should know that there will be times when you have to progress without permission. Injustice never Injustice never yields the floor, nor gives back the balance of its time. Patriarchy is too impolite to apologize for its wrongdoing. Misogyny is too mad to admit that it despises women. Racism is perceived to bring too many benefits to bow out when respectfully asked to leave. Homophobia is so locked up in the world that it knows that it refuses to walk into the world that can be. And economic exploitation has an insatiable appetite that despite its greed, it will not be satisfied. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza show us that if we are to make progress, then there will be times when you got to come forward and take a stand without getting permission. But not only that, if we are to engage societal patterns and systems of domination, then we also must see that these five sisters pushed back without apology. The text says that after they came forward and took the stand before the leaders of their community, then they articulated an argument that pushed back against a policy of exclusion that would have denied them ownership of their, of their family's right to land only based on their gender. What I love about their argument is that it is deeply personal and expertly political. With the surgeon's precision, they dismantle an unjust statute by bringing to the foreground their personal story of their father's death, which in telling it assisted in the campaign of changing policy. With great courage, they stood before the judicial leader in Moses, the religious leader in Eleazar, and the entire community to unabashedly tell their story. They shouldn't have had to tell their story. It was their story. But they stood up and they found a moment and a time where their story could help advance their agenda and get what their family needed. They showed a level of courage and comfort with their own story that helped push back on narratives that did not include families like theirs. They said, our family may not look like your family, 
They said, our family and our background may not be like yours. Our family history might be fraught with ups, downs, and whispers. But guess what? This is my story. And somebody here knows that it's a certain power that bubbles up within when you gain a comfort level with your own story. There's a certain level of Holy Ghost hubris that begins to rise in your spirit when you get so comfortable with your story that you are willing to tell it and you don't care who knows it. In fact, you'll help people get the details right when they spread rumors about what they think happened to you when you get a certain level of confidence with your own story. Can you just help my Baptist inclination and tell your neighbor, this is my story? It's my story. It's, it's my story. It, it may not be like yours. It may not be perfect. It may, may, may not be pristine, but it's mine. It's all mine. It's a part of the testimony of what God has brought me through. And I'm going to share and tell my story. If we ought to engage societal patterns and systems of domination, then we must progress without permission. If we are to engage societal patterns and systems of domination, then we must push back without apology. But finally, if we are to be victorious over domination, then Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza teach us that we have to be ready to provoke divine agreement. We got to be ready to provoke divine agreement. Process theology might be a better tool here to help us understand the outcome of this righteous interruption because the Bible says that after the sisters confronted Moses about being dominated, that Moses ran to God to consult with God about their demand. The text says that God agreed with the women, not only saying that they should inherit their father's land, but also that the law should be changed so that any other daughters could inherit land from their fathers as well. The text frames it as if God was brought to revelation, not the source of revelation. Now, I got seven minutes. I'm going to have to do this real fast. More familiar conceptions of God state God is unchangeable. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Process theology, though, would invite us to also consider that while the foundational attributes of God are in fact cemented, the Creator can also be moved. Now, I would have gotten in trouble in Sunday school by saying that one. The Creator can be moved to revelation by the actions of the created. This text can complicate basic understandings of God because here we have a divine revelation concerning a social arrangement that up to this point in the text was unknown and without advocate until it manifested through Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza. They instigated a revelation that sprung from the bottom of society. A divine revelation that bubbled up from the lived experiences of those on the margin. Mala, Noah, Hagla, Milka, and Terza rolled out the red carpet for a divine revelation. In this story, the will of God didn't come from God, 
but came through five sisters who said these rules don't work for us. And because they did, everything changed. I'm here tonight and I'm here this week because God is still speaking. And I believe that God's got something to say through you. You aren't just here to listen to preachers, teachers, and presenters. You're not just a receptacle, but rather you are the source of the holy. I'm here to preach your power out. I'm here to help activate the anointing that you already had when you showed up. I'm here to light a flame to your faith. I'm here to be the flavor flame to your divine giftedness and genius. I'm not here to talk at you or preach at you all week long. I'm not here to bring you God. I'm here because I suspect that God showed up when you walked through the door. The divine was already in you. Because five sisters stood up, every other little girl in town gained the right to own land. Because five sisters showed up, a law got changed because five sisters showed up. The judicial system had to adjust because five sisters showed up. The religious system had to bow and beg pardon because five sisters showed up. Everything changed around them. And I'm here because I see one, two, three, I see five sisters. I'm here. Because the scripture gives me indication that if we are to find justice when it comes to food and land and water and seed, then you better have five sisters around somewhere. I'm here because the scriptures testify of the divine working through five sisters and it's changing everything for everybody. I ain't here to be your expert. I'm here to be your hype man. Because you didn't fly from Oakland. You didn't come from Philly. You didn't come from points all over the country because you didn't have a flame. You had to work to get here. And I believe that that of God is within you, waiting for the right environment to germinate at a deeper level, waiting for the right situation where you don't have to fight off and defend your dream to people who don't understand. I'm here because you've had dreams in the midnight hour. I'm here because your diary and your journal knows the details of your purpose. I'm here because your cheeks know the tears of the frustration of working a nine to five when you know your legacy is calling you to something bigger and better. I ain't here to be your expert. I'm your hype man. I'm affirmation. I'm your amen corner. And I'm here to let you know that you are right when you say these rules don't work for us. And my only question is, if the rules don't work for us, what you gonna do about it? God bless you.